Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I have the honor of introducing you to our speaker. I'll have to admit it's kind of like introducing my children to their mother. You all know Mike. There are some of here that do not know Mike. And my introduction is fairly simple. Mike's a very sound, faithful, capable preacher of God's Word. We believe Mike to preach God's Word as God intends for it to be preached. We're excited to have Mike. Mike's been here for three and a half, going on four years. And we have grown to love him and to look forward to each lesson. And we want to have a chance for everyone in the neighborhood, all of everybody's friends, to be able to hear Mike. So we have this gospel meeting with our own preacher. So we're excited to hear Mike as he delivers his lessons this week. We encourage each of you to be here um, the bulletin has the list of the lessons if you'd like to, to look at that. Mike Hickson. Well, it is good to be with you. It's always good to be here at Olive Branch. And I am honored and humbled to have the opportunity to be a part of this gospel meeting. And I guess it is a very unique situation. It's not something that typically happens where you have the local preacher do the preaching for a gospel meeting. And when the elders asked me, I said, if you think it would be beneficial, I'll be happy to do it. And I am grateful to, to be a part of this meeting and to have the opportunity to, to preach God's Word. I love to preach God's Word. I love to preach here for the church at Olive Branch. And listen, I think we have a great nucleus of people here. The church here is blessed in many, many ways, and we have a broad spectrum of people that make up the church here at this location. And I really believe that if you're looking for a church home, you can find it right here at Olive Branch. We have young and old. We have, I guess I should say young, but maybe not so old, but we have a broad spectrum of people, and we have a very loving group of people, a very friendly group of people. We have great young people, and there are just so many advantages to being a part of a congregation that loves one another and that wants to serve the Lord and do the very best that they can. And so I'm grateful to, to be a part of the church here. I'm grateful for our elders, our deacons, for every good work that is going on. I do want to encourage you to come and, to come and be a part of every service that we have this week. We, we will be meeting through Wednesday night. And I want to encourage you to come to be a part of our, our services and to bring somebody with you. I don't know how many we have this morning, but we have a large number present. And for that, I'm very grateful. And I appreciate those of our membership that have encouraged and invited visitors, friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, whatever the case may be. We are very glad that you're here. We will have a luncheon right after our services today. And we want to encourage you to stay and be a part of that. I promise you, you will find some good food. 
And I, I was back there earlier, a lot of food, and so if you're hungry, please stay and visit with us. We would love to have you. We're going to be looking at Matthew 16 today, and we're going to be asking the question, why be a member of the Church of Christ? This may seem like an odd question, and I want to say at the onset that when we talk about the church, and when we talk about the church of Christ, we're not saying that the church of Christ is a denomination or that we are a better denomination. What we are saying is that we are simply trying to call people back to the church that we read about in Scripture, that we simply want to be the New Testament church as outlined in the Word of God. I did some research a couple of years ago, and I found that there are over 38,000 denominations in existence today. And that's somewhat puzzling to me in light of the fact that as Jesus neared the end of his physical sojourn here on planet Earth, he prayed for unity among all that would believe on his name through the apostles' word. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed that from a religious vantage point, we would have unity. And the only way that I know that unity can be achieved is for us to simply look at God's Word and to examine closely what God has to say through His Word. I would encourage people of every age to be like the Bereans of old who searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so, according to Acts 17, verse 11. What I would encourage you in our study today, don't take what I say because I said it, but I want to encourage you to investigate what the Bible has to say, to read, to study, to meditate on the truth of Almighty God, and then to draw your conclusions. And I would hope and pray that as a result of our study together, that you can see the distinctive nature of the New Testament church. And so as we ask the question, why be a member of the Church of Christ, the first thing that I would say is that the Church of Christ has the right builder. When we talk about the builder of the church, the one who founded the church, well, we're talking about Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, the passage that Austin read just a moment ago, we read of Jesus coming into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples on that occasion, what, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked this question, but whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, of course, affirmed his faith in the deity of Jesus. The Lord then said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What you and I need to understand is 
Jesus is the one who built the church. Now, I would encourage you to go back and to look at the scriptures and to realize that the church today, as was the case then, the church exists in accordance with God's eternal plan. You see, God planned or purposed for this divine entity known as the body of Christ, the church of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us that the church exists according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was not an afterthought, but rather it was just as much a part of God's divine scheme of redemption as his son Jesus was. The two are inseparable. And so we talk about this divine plan, this divine purpose. And of course, the purpose of God is realized when you go back and you begin to examine some of the great prophecies that were given as they relate to the church. For example, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, in verses 2 and 3, envisioned the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations of the earth would flow. He goes on to say that the word of the Lord would go forth out of Jerusalem. Isaiah, of course, talking about the church that we read about in the New Testament. Daniel, another great prophet of God. Daniel prophesied during the days of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, as you well know, had a dream. And he was disturbed by the dream that he had. And so Daniel, the prophet, had the opportunity to disclose the contents of that dream. And he pointed out that there would be four world empires that would rise and fall in successive order, beginning with Babylon, over which Nebuchadnezzar served as king. He said that Babylon would ultimately give way to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians would then fall to the Grecians, and the Grecians would then in turn fall to the Romans. And so in verse 44, Daniel would say, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, Daniel was talking about the church. He saw the church as a stone cut without hands, which I believe underscores the fact that this is an institution of divine origin. Well, those are just two prophecies that we can look up in the Old Testament and see how they relate to the coming of this, this institution known as the church. We talk about God's plan for the church and his prophecies. It's somewhat interesting to me that when you open the, the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3 and begin reading of the work of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Christ, his efforts were to point people in the direction of the Messiah, the Son of God. He was the forerunner, if you please. He would say, he was not that light, but came to bear witness of the light, the light being Jesus. John would say of himself, he must increase, pointing to Jesus, but I must decrease. Well, John preached a message of repentance. He said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom he was talking about was the same institution that Daniel the prophet foretold of some seven centuries earlier. But then we come now to the promise that was made by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples, 
that upon this rock I will build my church. I would encourage you to note the terminology employed by Jesus was both singular and possessive in nature. Jesus promised to build his church, to build the church, to build one church. And he also said that the church would belong to him. He said, I will build my church. The church doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to any man. It is pictured in the Bible as the bride of Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, John would say the bride has made herself ready. The bride simply being the church, the body of Christ. And so Jesus promised to build this church. Now over in Mark chapter 9 verse 1, Jesus would say, Verily I say unto you, there are some standing here that will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. The term kingdom and the term church are oftentimes used interchangeably in the Bible. Not every time, but on many occasions the terms are used to denote the same institution. In verse 19, Jesus would say, and I also say it, he was saying to Peter, that I will give unto you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, that is a reference to the church, the church that he promised to build. Now, here's a question. What about the price of the church? What did it cost Jesus to establish to build his church? Well, it cost him his blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Peter said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The church that we're talking about in the Bible was bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. He purchased it. Paul said in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for it. Jesus literally gave himself for the church. So, the church of Christ has the right builder. Jesus is... He is the founder of the church, and the psalmist said, Except the Lord build the house, they who labor, labor in vain. He is also the foundation of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 11, Paul would say, For other foundation can no one lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the foundation rests. In Ephesians 2, at verse 20. So, first of all, I would suggest that one of the reasons we ought to be members of the Church of Christ is because Jesus built it. But secondly, let me suggest that the Church of Christ began at the right time and the right place. When we talk about the Church of the Bible, we're talking about an institution that is almost 2,000 years old. Now, if you go back to Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, of course, said that the kingdom of God would be established during the days of the Roman kings. Isaiah said that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. Jesus bought the church. He built a church. He paid for the church with his own blood. Well, according to God's timetable and according to God's plan, the church began where? In the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah said the word of the Lord would go forth from where? From Jerusalem. In Luke 24, when Jesus gave what is typically called the Great Commission, he said 
that repentance and remission of sins would go forth in his name beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where the church of Christ began. It began on Pentecost Day, as I said a moment ago, almost 2,000 years ago. We go back and we say A.D. 33. You have to understand that everything about the scheme of redemption took place according to God's timetable. For example, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul would say that Jesus came forth of the Virgin Mary according to a divine timetable. He was born according to God's timetable. Well, the same thing's true with regard to the church. The church began in the city of Jerusalem, A.D. 33. From that, we could deduce these facts. Any church that began prior to Pentecost Day cannot be the church that we read about in the New Testament. Any church that began after Pentecost Day would not be the church that we read about in the New Testament. Why? Well, it, would, it, it came along too late. When, when, when you look at, at the Scriptures and you think about the early church, if you were to have asked someone in the first century, of what church do you belong to? They would have said, well, I'm a member of the church. I'm a member of the church of God. I'm a member of the church of Christ. I'm a member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When, when we look at the religious landscape today, there are, as I said a moment ago, literally thousands of denominations. The people in the first century, they didn't know anything about denominationalism. And the reason being was because denominationalism didn't come along until some 1,500 years after the birth of the church on Pentecost Day. In the, in the Old Testament, you read of God pointing to the coming of the Christ and of his church. From Genesis to Acts chapter 2, everything is pointing to the coming of the church. From Acts chapter 2 and forward, you read about the church being in existence. The church was unknown in existence until Pentecost Day, A.D. 33. And so if you were to have asked somebody in the first century, of what church do you belong? They would have simply said the church, the church of Christ, the church of God, the church that Jesus died and purchased with his blood. That's the only church they knew anything about. Let me give you a third reason why you ought to be a member of the church of Christ. I believe the Church of Christ has the right terms of admission. When we talk about God's redemptive plan, we have to understand that Jesus is the only way for us to have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me in John 14 at verse 6. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For the most part, all of us in the religious world agree salvation is in Christ. As a matter of fact, for the most part, I would submit that those who believe the Bible and those who believe the New Testament, who believe in the deity of Christ, they would affirm the fact that Jesus is the means of salvation. He is the link to the Father. However, 
Where we tend to differ sometimes with those in the religious community is how we become a member of the church, how we become identified with Christ. What I would suggest is there is a divine plan. Just as surely as there was a divine plan for the establishment of the church, there is a divine plan whereby you and I can be members of the church, whereby we can be we can simply be New Testament Christians. We can be among the saved. Let me tell you what that plan is very quickly. On Pentecost Day, the Apostle Peter, as you well know, had the opportunity to preach to multitudes of people, literally thousands of people, were in the city of Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. On that day, the Apostles preached the first gospel sermon. They had the opportunity to present the truth of Almighty God. The people to whom they spoke believed in Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's well documented in chapter 2. He said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs. They knew who Jesus was. Some of those people may very well have been present when Jesus was put to death on Calvary's cross. Well, what about our faith in Jesus? Is it imperative for us to have faith in Jesus as the Son of God? Absolutely. In no way would I ever minimize the importance of faith in God's Son. The Hebrew writer said in the long ago, Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Jesus said in John 8, verse 24, Except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. What we have to do is come to an understanding of who Jesus is. You and I have to decide, do we believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true? That he was, that he is the divine Son of God. Peter affirmed in the long ago, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Do we believe that? Well, that's, that's imperative in the scheme of redemption. But then also, not only are we to believe in Jesus, but we have to repent of our sins. When those people on Pentecost Day heard that gospel sermon, they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They wanted to know. The Bible says they were pricked in their hearts. They were cut to the heart. God's word had literally cut them to the quick. And so they wanted to know, what do we need to do to be saved? Well, Peter said, repent. Repentance is simply a change of mind, a change of heart. It's doing a 180 degree turn. A good example of that would be Saul of Tarsus. He had been a persecutor of the church. He obeyed the gospel. This great persecutor became the persecuted. He became a follower of the Lord. He made a 180, an about face, if you please. And then there is confession. In other words, we confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that Jesus is the Son of God. In Acts chapter 8, when we read about the eunuch, he had been to Jerusalem to worship Almighty God. I believe he was a proselyte to the Jewish religion. He's on his way back home. He's reading from... Isaiah the prophet. He doesn't, doesn't necessarily understand what he's reading. When Philip gets, gets to the chariot, he asks him, Do you understand what you're reading? Well, 
The eunuch didn't understand. He wanted to know, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? The Bible tells us that beginning at that same scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, which points people in the direction of the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Son of God, Philip preached unto this man, Jesus. When they came to certain water, he said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip then said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch then said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If I believe Jesus to be the Son of God, and I do, why would I not want to confess that before others? In Matthew 10:32, Jesus talks about the importance of confessing him before men. So in the New Testament, when we talk about people becoming members of the body of Christ, they believed in Jesus, they, they had faith in him. They repented of their sins, that is, they turned from a life of sin. They willingly acknowledged Jesus as Lord. They confessed that he was the Son of God. And then they were immersed in a watery grave of baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, so their sins could be washed away. We, again, we go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now I want you to just think about it for a moment. Did Peter know what he was saying? Well, what a question. Peter was an inspired apostle. Did he know what he was telling these people to do? I believe he was speaking on behalf of God. Here were people, they believed in Jesus as the Son of God. They were convicted of their sins. They needed to repent and they needed to be baptized. Now why be baptized? So that their sins could be forgiven. So that they could be remitted, removed, washed away, cleansed. Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22 verse 16, when he recounts his conversion story, he says that when Ananias got to him, he said, Why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Why be baptized into Christ? Well, number one, we need to be baptized into Christ so that our sins can be washed away and we can contact the blood of Christ. We are saved not by the water, but by the blood of Jesus. We have to come in contact with His blood. The only way we can come in contact with the blood of Christ is to go where it was shed. Where was the blood of Christ shed? In death, John 19, 34. When Jesus was hanging upon the cross, the Bible tells us that a Roman soldier pierced his side and water and blood came forth. So we have to contact the blood of Christ. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. In Ephesians 1 7, the Bible says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Please listen very carefully. Sometimes people have a tendency to extract a scripture here and a scripture from over here and another scripture from over here, another scripture from over here, and then they build a case on the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Sometimes, unfortunately, they will take one scripture and build their case 
In Psalm 119, verse 160, the psalmist said, The entirety of your word is truth. And I think when it comes to the terms of admission into the kingdom of God, we have to take the sum totality of God's word. We have to look at every scripture and then pull those scriptures together and draw a conclusion. On Pentecost Day, when Peter said, Repent and be baptized... Think of how foreign that is to the religious world today. So many people in our religious world today, good people, honest people, sincere people, in no way would I ever impugn their motives. But they have been told, all you have to do is believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. All you have to do is say the sinner's prayer and you will be saved. If you read the New Testament from cover to cover, You will never read of one individual only believing in Christ and becoming a member of the body of Christ. You will never read of one person saying what is called the sinner's prayer and becoming a part of the body of Christ. When we are baptized into Christ, and I believe every step is essential, it's like a combination lock. I remember when I was in junior high school, we had combination locks. And typically you would turn that combination lock to the right, then back to the left, and then back to the right again. What if I had left out one of those numbers in sequence? Would the lock have opened? Well, absolutely not. By the same token, every step is essential. If a person is baptized into Christ but doesn't believe in Jesus, then they're not not following God's plan of admission into the kingdom of God. They just got wet. Every step essential. I said just a moment ago that we need to be baptized because... We have to contact the blood of Christ. That's the point at which we contact the blood of Jesus. But then also we need to be baptized because when we are baptized, then and only then are we placed in the body of Christ, that is, in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, here's what Paul said. He said, By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. You remember when Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth. So he asked the question, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus then said, verily, verily, assuredly, assuredly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He went on to say, marvel not, I say to you, you must be born again. When we comply with the new birth, then we are translated into the kingdom of God. Then we are placed in the body of Christ. Now let me just pause here and ask this question. If a person does what they did in the first century, does it not stand to reason that they will become what they were in the first century? When you obey the gospel, you don't have to... You don't have to join the church. You don't have to be voted into the church. The Bible says God adds you to the church. Now let me just pause here and ask this question. When people believed, repented, confessed, and were baptized into Jesus in the first century, what church were they added to? The only church they knew anything about. The New Testament church. The body of Christ. God added those people to the church. Well, somebody asked the question, how many bodies were there? Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in Ephesians 4. 
He said, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, in all, and through all. The Bible says there's one body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. In Ephesians 1.22 and 23, Paul said, He put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church and the body are synonymous terms. When a person is baptized into Christ, they are then added to the church. The words body, church, kingdom, those are synonymous terms. So when people were baptized into Christ, they were added to the body of Christ, this distinctive, exclusive body that Jesus purchased with his blood and that he built on Pentecost Day. That's what the Bible says. Let me just add this. The Bible says there's one head and there is one body. That's what Scripture says. He is the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. If Jesus is the head of the body, and he is, that means we don't need a head serving here on earth. The Bible says there's one head and there's one body. There are some people that say there are two heads and one body. That's not biblical. There are some people that say there's one head and many bodies. Again, that's not biblical. The Bible says there's one head and there's one body. The head is Jesus. The body is what? It's his church. So we ought to be members of the church of Christ because we believe that what the Bible says about the terms of admission are true. And again, please understand, I do not say this in an arrogant, caustic, proud manner. All I'm trying to do is present unto you what the New Testament teaches. Do like the Bereans. Search the Scriptures. Very quickly, our time is gone, but let me just say this. The Church of Christ also has the right creed. Think about our world today. 38,000 denominations. You can go to many stores and you can find any number of creed books, manuals of faith, catechisms, etc. The Church of Christ has but one creed, and that creed is the Bible. If we did away with all of the creeds and the manuals of faith and the catechisms in existence today, we could, we could eradicate a lot of the division that exists in the religious world. The only way that we can speak and have unity is for us to use the same standard, the standard being the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul chided the church at Corinth for their division, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no division among you, but that you all speak the same thing. In order for us to have unity, we have to speak the same thing. I said a moment ago, there's no need for a human head here on earth. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our head. Somebody says, how then can Jesus regulate the church, if he's in heaven and we're on earth, let me tell you how he does that, through his will. It's called the New Testament, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. If you want to control your estate at death, what do you do? You write a will. At your death, that will is then probated. It's executed. And your, your estate, the contents of your estate are distributed as outlined in that will. All we're doing is following the teaching of the Son of God. Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. 
God the Father said of Jesus Christ the Son, we are to hear him, Matthew 17, 5. Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To do something in the name of Christ is to simply do it by his authority. All we're doing is trying to appeal to people to follow what the New Testament teaches, to listen to the word of God. As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. And then finally, I believe that the church of Christ wears the right name. There are collective names that are used to describe the church. There are individual names that are used, appellations, that are used to describe members of the body of Christ. When it, when it comes to the collective body of Christ, there's not an exclusive name in the sense that there's just one name we can wear. As long as we wear a biblical name. Somebody says it really doesn't matter what name we wear. Well, let me ask this question to those of you who are men. How would you feel if your wife took an, a man, another man's... Uh, it, how would you feel if your wife took another man's name? We, we, we wouldn't appreciate that, would we? Well, by the same token, we're simply saying... The church belongs to Christ. If the church belongs to Jesus, then why shouldn't it wear his name? Collectively, let me just identify for you scriptural designations of the church we read about in the New Testament. In the American Standard Version, the term church is used 95 times. The church is the ecclesia, the called out ones, those who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. The term kingdom of God found 68 times in the New Testament. The kingdom of God is a reference to the collective body of believers. The kingdom of heaven found 32 times in the New Testament in the American Standard Version. Again, the kingdom of heaven, simply a scriptural designation for the body of believers that we read about in the Bible. In Romans 16, 16, we read about the churches of Christ salute you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the church of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church of the living God. All of those names are scriptural. All of those names are found in the New Testament. Why not just wear a Bible name? What about individually? When, when we talk about people who comprise the body of Christ, what do we read about? Well, we read about in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, of believers. In Acts chapter 6, we read about individuals who were styled disciples. In Acts 9 verse 2, they were called followers of the way. In Acts chapter 11, they were called Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, they were called saints. In Colossians 1 2, they were called brethren. Again, these are terms used to identify members of the body of Christ. It's important that we, wear, that we wear a biblical name. Now, let me close by asking this question. Why be a member of the church of Christ? Well, the Bible says that Jesus, he bought the church, he purchased it. The church exists today. It's a spiritual institution. The saved are in the church. Sometimes people say today, well, you can have a relationship with Jesus, but you don't need the church. Well, that doesn't make sense because in Ephesians 5.23, the Bible tells us that Christ is the Savior of the body. If you're not in the body, if you're not in the church, you're not among the saved. So you have to be in the body to be among the saved. If you're in the body of Christ, you're among the saved, the redeemed, the cleansed. 
You're a part of the body of Christ. You belong to the New Testament church. I would hope and pray that the things that we've talked about today are, are, are simple and easy to understand. I hope that you, that you take what you have heard today, that you examine, investigate, think about these things. I would simply say that in closing, there are copies of this lesson in the foyer. If you'd like to have a copy of it, you're welcome to take one. We believe it's important to simply follow the Bible. That's all we're trying to do is to simply follow the Word of God. And let me tell you why we're trying to follow the Word of God. Because on the final day of judgment, what's going to judge me, not the doctrines and commandments of men, not the confessions of faith and the catechisms that, that have been written by men. The only thing that's going to judge me is this book called the Bible. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receive not my, receives not my word has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We need to be members of the body of Christ. We need to follow the words of Christ because ultimately this book will judge us. So we want to make sure that our hearts and lives are attuned to the will of God. Maybe you're here today, you're not a member of the body of Christ. You're not a member of the church that you read about in the Bible. Could I encourage you to simply lay aside what others have said, the doctrines, the commandments of men, and just become a New Testament Christian? If you do, I promise, if you do what they did, you'll become what they were, which was simply a New Testament Christian, a believer, a disciple, a follower of the, of the way, a member of the blood-bought body of Jesus. If you're here today and you're not faithful to his cause, we beg and plead with you, come home as we stand and sing.